You guys doing good today? I hope you guys uh, have some big plans to enjoy this holiday weekend that involves lots of hamburgers and hot dogs and family and swimming and, I don't know, horseshoes, whatever. And, and Well, let's hope not. <laughs> let's not do that. Things are close. <laughs> Let's pray. Most gracious God, we give you praise in this moment for all that you do and for your unending love and your grace that we just sang about. And we're grateful that we have the privilege yet again to uh, open your word, to come back and to listen for your voice and to seek your face. But God, if we're being honest, we're, our hearts are heavy this morning with grief. Our hearts grieve for the reminder of what this holiday represents for those who paid the greatest price for the freedom that we now enjoy, the freedom to come and to sing and to praise you without fear or persecution. For every life that was laid down for our sakes, we pause to remember and to honor them. And God, we are also consumed with pain and hurt and anger and confusion over the events of this last week. We don't have the answers. After all these years, after all these innocent lives later, we still search for answers and solutions while the chasm continues to separate and grow. Lord, have mercy on us. Heal our division. Unite us now as a nation. Forgive us for our sins and heal our land. Be with us now as we uh, open up your word. May your spirit pierce our hearts. May the word spoken here be your words. We ask all this in your holy name. Amen. So uh, we're going to be reading out of 1 Corinthians, Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. And uh, I'm going to be reading out of the ninth chapter, verses 19, 19 through 23. And I would love it if you guys would join me. You ready? Here we go. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. Though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak, to win the weak. I have became all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. May God bless the reading of his word. Can I turn this down just a little bit, Mr. Garner? Thank you. Now, this is an interesting passage, and it's one that we really need to uh, walk through delicately because in the past, uh, this text has been used and abused by many to justify actions and behaviors that were just simply not the intent of what Paul was trying to convey. Uh, take, for example, and this is an extreme example, and I realize this, but back in the 70s, uh, there was this cult, uh, I think they're still around, they're called the family. You guys familiar with this cult? Back then, they were called the children of God. A misinterpretation of this text that we just read prompted this group 
to use prostitution to evangelize. They proselytize through prostitution. Say that three times real fast. You can't make this stuff up. They called it flirty fishing. You guys hear about this? You can't make this stuff up. They defended their practice by saying it was a way of bearing witness for Jesus to people, mostly men, who would not otherwise be open to it. Of course, this is not what Paul is trying to communicate in this text that we read. And I realize that this flirty fishing thing is an extreme example of how not to do things, but you get my point. However, when we read and we understand correctly in the right context what Paul is trying to communicate, I believe that there's a lot of value in what we can learn this morning, and I believe that it can offer us freedom to find new and creative ways to share the gospel with the world. So first of all, let's put it in context. What Paul was really trying to address to the church was this issue of eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols. That was a no-no. Okay? The law forbade that or forbade that, forbid that, forbid that. The law, I don't know. It, it was frowned upon. <laughs> it was offensive to the Jewish culture. And although Paul knew and understand, understood that in Christ he was given the freedom from the law that prohibited such things, he had the freedom to eat the meat should he have chosen because he was trying to build a rapport to establish a relationship with the Jewish community. And he knew that if he ate, he would have offended some folks. He abstained because the relationship was more important than his need to be right, called assimilation. This wasn't even the first time. There were other examples of Paul doing this. In Acts, Paul participated in Jewish purification ceremonies, which he knew was not necessary for his own life. But he hoped that it would help build a bridge of ministry to the Jews. A little later in Acts, in chapter 16, Paul had Timothy circumcised again. Not because it was necessary, but, it cut, but because it could be helpful in getting ministry done among the Jews. Talk about taking one for the team. Paul sought to win people for Jesus Christ by being sensitive to their needs and identifying with them. Now what he is not saying, and this is important, is that to win folks to Jesus, this anything goes kind of lifestyle must be taken up. We should not think that Paul changed his doctrine or his message to appeal to different groups. In fact, he condemns this and he talks about this back at the beginning of the same letter that he wrote in chapter 1, where he says this, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but he is not going to pull away from the message. So the message is unchanged, but he would, however, he would, however, adjust his manner of approach. Now, in the same letter, Paul expounds a little more in the 10th chapter. And I think he kind of just puts a cap on it to help us maybe to come up with a better rule of thumb when he says this. So whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God. In other words, adapt as much as you can in non-sinful ways. And he goes on to say, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. 
I think the best way to embrace the moral of our, of our lesson this morning is, is to say it like this. Paul was willing to offend people over the gospel, but he wanted to offend them only over the gospel. Now, I, I, I looked around and I find a really, a really neat video clip that I want to show you guys this morning that I think might help reinforce the, this, this, uh, this concept. And this is from, from a movie called Hyde Park on the Hudson. Who's seen this movie? It's an obscure film. I, I never actually watched it. I just saw the film clip, and I had to do some study and research on it. It's got Bill Murray in it. Bill Murray plays FDR in this movie, right? Now you guys are going to go check it out, aren't you? Well, in 1939, the king and, and queen of England, in, in order to, uh, to improve the relations with the United States, they traveled to the Hudson. There's a little spot there where they used to hang out to visit with FDR and, and his wife and all the family that was hanging out there. And they were trying to uh, establish a better rapport between us and them because they, they were basically getting prepared for a war with Germany. So what, what soon would become World War II was impending. So they wanted to make sure that this relationship was a strong one. But now the King of England was stressing a little bit because he got invited to a picnic. Why not? It's Memorial Day weekend, right? And, of course, his biggest fear is, they're going to make me eat a hot dog. Let's watch it. take mustard. I take whatever you think I should take. Daisy, would you show how we put on Why up there, Floyd? It's all right. It's fine. It's fine. It's about. It's very good. And like that, we felt America and England were back on the road to being very good friends. At least, I'm told that's how some people took it. It made me wonder, maybe the hot dogs hadn't been Eleanor's idea after all. When he left for England later that day, the king sent back a telegram in which he wrote that our two nations had now forged, and these are his words, a special relationship. It's good, it's all fine. I'll have another. (laughs) 
So, so yeah, something as simple as just joining in and, 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 and taking part in, in the culture of, of the world that you're visiting or taking part in, just something as simple as biting into a hot dog. I mean, bridged the gap, just created um, a, a stronger relationship between nations. So this is, this is what Paul is trying to explain to us, to trying to help us to understand, is, is we need to be willing to step outside of our own comfort zones into the lives of others to be able to assimilate somewhat to what makes them tick, what, what brings them passion, because that's how we forge relationships. This whole origin of Christianity is really based on this same principle, if you think about it. The incarnation itself was a prime example of cross-cultural ministry. Jesus came from a heavenly realm to put on flesh to become one of us. Philippians 2 says it like this. He made himself nothing to take on the very nature of a servant. In, in the Gospel of John, the first chapter, one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture, he tells us that the Word became human, the Word became flesh, and he made his home, made his dwelling among us. Jesus became a man, and he entered into this world as a humble baby who grew up uh, in a Jewish culture, but more than that, he became one of us. And just as Christ came and lived among the people, in that time and culture, we also have the opportunity to go and to live among the people in the time that we are in now, in our culture. Now, Jesus was not just the message of good news. He embodied the message. He went into the Jewish culture of that time, and he embodied the good news, and he transmitted it through servanthood and through loving relationships that would eventually transform the world. Jesus offers for us the example that Paul is telling us about. Jesus didn't just come into our world, build a temple, sit on his throne, and, and tell everybody to come to him, right? No, he, he went to them. And who did he go to? The elite, the righteous, the upright. He went to the outcasts. He went to the dregs of society. And when no one considered getting close to a leper, Jesus crossed the boundaries and touched them and healed them. The blind and the lame and the crippled, they were all off limits too because their ailments were considered to be consequences of their own sin. Jesus crossed those boundaries as well and gave them the healing that they needed. When no one would consider being seen in public with the taxpayers, the prostitutes, the Samaritans, the drunks and the gluttons, Jesus ate and hung out with them, yes, and even drank with them. He even recruited some of them to be his disciples. Jesus came to them where they were, in their mess. Then he took their mess and made it into something beautiful because that's what he does. And then he ascended into heaven and he left it with us. And we have tried every way possible to tear it up, to break it. Still, the church lives Still, the church exists in spite of ourselves. And the world needs it now more than ever. Today in Western culture, it is my opinion that the largest obstacle to the church fulfilling its mission in the 21st century are the silos that we build. Now, many of you that work in the business world, you're probably familiar with this term, silos. This is where... Uh, internal divisions within a business entity build walls around themselves to the point that the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing. 
For, for instance, the sales department doesn't talk with the customer service department. Neither of them know what marketing is doing or research and development or billing and operations. I used to work for a company that every three to four years they would restructure just for this reason. They would change things up to prevent all these silos from continuing to grow and to build and to improve intercommunication. Why did they have to do it so often? You think they could have just done it once and been done with it? Why do they have to do stuff like this so often? Anybody want to take a guess? Because this is what we do. This is our nature. We fall into these cliques. We fall into what makes us comfortable. We fall into comfort levels, and this is where we want to stay. And you've heard me say this before. Comfort is a killer. Nothing good ever came from being comfortable. Now, is the church any different? We can be really good at being silo builders ourselves, right? The obvious way that we have done this is by creating all these different sects of Christianity throughout history. Why did we do this? Because we couldn't agree on anything. Every branch of the church from the beginning to today, over time, was sprouted out of disagreement and schism. The Protestant division alone, that's us, by the way, there are more than 43,000 different denominations. Apparently, there's 43,000 different ways to interpret Scripture. Who knew? Like I said, we've made a mess of things down here. We've been busy over the last 2,000 years building silos. You know, before Jesus was taken, he prayed for his disciples. And then he prayed for us. And this is what he said. He said, Father, I pray for these followers, but I am also praying for all those who will believe in me because of their teaching. This is you and me. Father, I pray that they can be one. As you are in me and I am in you, I pray that they can also be one in us. Then the world will believe that you sent me. God forgive us. Church has also become an object of consumerism. People shop, shop around looking for different things that fit their own personal needs. How's the music? How's the preaching? What kind of programs does the church offer me and my family? When we find that the presumed right fit, then we want to hole up inside and enjoy its fruits. And in essence, what they're really doing is shopping for the best silo. I mean, sure, we might invite folks to come and join us in our silo. Maybe the ones that we want to come join us, right? When in reality, what the church shoppers should be asking is how does the church best fulfill its mission into the world? I mean, good preaching and music and, and programs, they're, they're great. I, I mean, for obvious reasons. I, I, I'm on board with it. But if the faith community isn't going out into the world to serve and to share the gospel, then they're just building silos that separate them from the rest of the world. Perhaps you've heard the phrase, be in the world, but not of the world. This phrase is based on the language used in Scripture, mostly by Jesus, to describe the relational aspects of the church in the world. But what it doesn't say is to hide from the world. 
And it's so easy for us to fall into this because we want to protect our, our silo. We want to protect our comfort zones. We want to protect our family. And we have all the amenities, don't we, in our silos. Everything that belongs in our silos has a Christian prefix in front of it. Which brings me to my next point. We build silos with labels. As Christians, we have our own music. We have our own radio stations. We have our own bookstores. We have our own books, fiction, nonfiction. We have our own schools. We have our own clothing lines. We have our own movies. We have our own video games. We have our own dating apps. We have all the amenities that we could ever hope for. Now, it's important for you to hear me here because I don't want to come across as a hypocrite. I love this stuff. I love all these things. I do. But I have to ask this question. Do any of these things make us better Christians? Or do they just serve to separate us from the world? Are we even in the world anymore, or are we just hiding from it? And if we are, in fact, hiding from it, how can we be effective instruments of change and how can we spread the gospel message? How can we be inviting? How can we tell people to come and see if we aren't even willing to go and tell? Jesus said this in Matthew's gospel, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. And then he says this, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. Now, Dallas Willard, one of my favorite Christian authors, there's that, there's that label again. He, he wrote a Christian book <laughs> called the, the Spirit of Disciplines. And in this book, he, he gives this quote. You've probably heard me uh, quote him before. By modest estimate, more than a quarter of the entire population of the United States have professed an evangelical conversion experience. More than a quarter of our nation has professed to be Christian. And I like this point he makes. William Iverson Riley observes that a pound of meat would surely be affected by a quarter pound of salt. If this is real Christianity, the salt of the earth, then where is the effect of which Jesus spoke? Now, you don't need me to tell you that there's a lot in this world that is messed up. You don't need me to tell you that evil exists in this world. I don't know how else you can explain how a, how a, how a young man, a teenager, can walk into a grade school and shoot and kill 18 innocent grade school kids and two teachers for no reason at all. This isn't a political thing. This is a wake-up call. What are we doing as salt and light to make a difference in the world? I hate that we made this political. Do you see the church as a place or an event that you attend once a week, if you're lucky? Or do you see the church as a living organism whose primary mission is to go and tell and share and invite and preach the good news? And not from just within our silos, but from the highest rooftops. You see, what Paul is suggesting is in order for us to reach those that need to be reached, we have to stretch ourselves. We have to step out of our comfort zones. We have to leave our silos. 
Now, our space here is sacred. I believe that with every fiber of my, of my being. I have no doubts about that. Being surrounded by like-minded individuals for a common purpose and the presence of the divine is a powerful thing. But if we limit the nature of God to only the people, places, and things that we might consider to be sacred, then we are putting God in a box. So I want to attempt to dispel a common misconception this morning. My opinion. And that misconception is this distinction between the sacred and the secular. Because I think this is important for us to embrace in order for us to escape from our silos. The sacred and secular divide is this idea that some things are sacred or spiritual and, and that other things are, are, are physical and they don't really matter to God. The sacred and the spiritual matters to God, but the other things, they don't really matter to God, at least not that much. You with me? The problem with this widespread way of thinking, and it is, it's widespread, is that by this definition, most of life is secular. The sacred stuff is a small slice of the pie by this definition. Going to church, praying, reading scriptures, serving, what is that, like 5% of our lives? The fact is, we spend most of our lives working, grocery shopping, walking the dog, working out, eating a burrito. And so most of us are clueless because we think that what we do every day, our work and our rest and our play, how we unwind, how we enjoy God's world, because that's what it is. It's God's world. We think that it's meaningless and it doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things. What's interesting, though, is that if you try to look up the word spiritual or sacred in the Old Testament, in the, in the original Hebrew language, it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist because in a Hebrew worldview, all of life is spiritual. All of life is sacred. They didn't have these distinctions and these labels. And even when you get to the New Testament, the word spiritual is only used by Paul in his writing to describe becoming animated by the Holy Spirit. And for Paul, every facet of our life should be spiritual. I think if you were to ask Jesus about his spiritual life, he would look at you like you were nuts. What are you talking about? My whole life is spiritual. Jesus didn't buy into this sacred, secular argument either. To him... Life is a seamless, integrated, holistic experience where the sacred is all around us. And because everything is spiritual, because everything is sacred, everything matters to God. You with me? I once heard it said that Christian is a great noun and a poor adjective. There's no such thing as Christian music. Because you can't make a melody become Christian. Only a songwriter can be Christian. There's no such thing as Christian art because a canvas can't be filled with the spirit of the living God. Only the painter can. 
And it's easy to forget that Jesus was a builder. Jesus was a carpenter. But by today's standards, by the definition we're talking about, by this worldview that I'm trying to dispel, Jesus would have been working a secular job. Any carpenters in here? Woodworkers? Builders? I don't know about you, but I think building a house with Jesus would be a pretty spiritual experience. <laughs> now listen, if we are filled with the active, dynamic spirit of God himself, the line between heaven and earth is thin at best. The sacred is never far away. Don't try to box it up. I know there's some bad stuff out there. That's not lost on me. But we can't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Pop culture is not always the enemy. I remember when I was a kid in the 80s, you guys remember the whole record-burning craze, the rock albums that were, the churches were gathering and putting on fire because rock music was the devil's music? You don't remember that? I didn't do that in Chicago, Bob? <laughs> oh yeah, they were burning them all over and they were they were playing them backwards because if you played them backwards there was these demonic messages. If you played if you played Stairway to Heaven backwards, there was this message from Satan himself. You know, I did it. I played it backwards. You know what the message said? <laughs> That's what it says. It's crazy. <laughs> That's right. Paul was dead. I remember. Well, that was, that was before my time. That was more Vance's time. But anyway, if we split, if we split, listen, if we split culture dualistically with sacred on one side and secularly on, secular on the other, then we risk, we risk missing the, the very human presence and the songs like what we sing here, like How Can It Be? Or You Never Let Go. Or, or we miss finding the godly undertones that exist in music like one of my favorites, Bruce Springsteen, who sings about the con this concept of original sin. Or Steve Earle, who, who basically is transparent and writes about his whole spiritual journey throughout his whole library of music. Or when I listen to you too, and I hear stories of redemption and hope, and yeah, even doubt. Or Leonard Cohen, Billie Holiday, songs of lamentations. Or when I listen to Taylor Swift, I feel encouraged to shake it off. But you know what? Even Taylor Swift might be interested in knowing that God can even be found in the lyrics of Kanye West. It's, it's true. It's true. It's not because Kanye West is a, is, is, is a saint. It's because God is not bound by Kanye West. God is not bound by the limitations that we want to put on him. We have to let him out of the box. So bridging this gap between secular and sacred, we can begin to step out of our silos. And even more, we, be, we can open our eyes and begin to appreciate the beauty that exists beyond these walls. We can, we can find the beauty that we might never have seen in the first place. 
And once we step out of our silos and into the world, then we can start to develop those relationships that Paul is talking about. So coming back to this whole come and see concept that we've been focused on these last few weeks, where does this put us today as as a church, as revolution? How does looking at invitation differ now that we see it through this Pauline lens as he has described his own ministry to us? You don't have to answer out loud, but do you see us as a silo church? Do you think there's silos within this church? We can't keep the message of Jesus a secret. What do you believe is the best way to reach folks? What do you believe is the best way to share the gospel? This is important because if we truly believe what we profess to believe, If we truly believe that Jesus is the life-giving Son of God, our Redeemer, our great healer, the resurrected Christ, the Lion of Judah, all these things that we believe about Christ, if we truly believe these things, then we have to stop treating Jesus like there's only so much of him to go around. If we truly believe these things, we must believe that Jesus has the power to change and even save lives. And if we believe that, that we need to find ways to make him known in the world, even if that world is just the folks on our block or the folks at work, at our schools, or our families. Sometimes families can be the hardest to minister to, right? But we love them, so we have to be able to extend this invitation to come and see to the ones that need to come and see. I had a strange thing pop into my head the other day. I'm just imagine you're sitting on your back porch flipping maybe it's Memorial Day and you're making hot dogs and all of a sudden poof this dude just pops up out of nowhere on your back porch it probably happens to you all the time right and he's from the future because they invented a time machine in the future by the way I know this will never happen you know how I know this has anybody ever met a time traveler It would have made the news by now, right? So time travels out. It's not going to happen, but let's assume that it did. This guy shows up with an envelope, and inside this envelope is a cure for cancer. And he's like, hey, man, I'm, I'm from 60 years in the future, and I've only got just a few minutes. You're the first person I find. I need to give this to you. So he hands you this envelope, and inside this envelope is a cure to cancer, and then poof, he's gone. And you think to yourself, ain't nobody going to believe this. So you set on it, you put it in a drawer, and that's where it stays. Even though you know inside this envelope might be the cure to save millions and millions of people. You keep it to yourself. Now, cancer is an ugly, horrific disease, and I don't want to take anything away from that truth. I don't want to make light of it. Many of us know this firsthand. But folks, by not sharing the truth that is Jesus, we are denying them the life that can be found only in Christ. It's time. It's past time for us to get busy. I have no idea what this means for you. What I do know is that you are a part of the priesthood of all believers. 
This is biblical. This is what the foundation of the Protestant Reformation was built on. The fact that all of you, all of us are called to go out and preach the good news. Not just the priests, not just the pastors, not just the preachers, all of us. And as a member of the priesthood, you have been given a circle of influence. Is it a secular circle? Yeah. Is it a sacred circle? You better believe it. And you can use your circle of influence to make a difference in your little section of the universe. Maybe this means inviting that coworker that you know loves to fish to go on a fishing trip. Maybe you hate fishing, but you know that this person loves to fish. Or maybe it means taking somebody you don't normally hang out with to go get their nails done or have dinner or coffee. Remember, it all starts with relationships. You've got to develop that first. Then and only then can you earn their trust and they can begin to open themselves up to this come and see invitation. Find out what makes them tick. Find out what their passion is and use that as a gateway into their lives. Now, before I close, I want to touch on, on one more thing. When we look at, a, at our scripture reading this morning, how can we apply this to our use of social media? Now, I'm, I'm talking about social media this morning because this is the communication platform of the 21st century. Right here in 2022, this is how things get communicated. I, I, I know social media is the devil. I get it. There's a lot of bad stuff out there. And we certainly need to be careful. But unfortunately, it's become a necessary evil for us. Pardon the phrase. In today's world, in today's culture, it's almost impossible to reach anyone without the use of social media. To exist in our culture today, we have to embrace it as a tool of communication. So as I was thinking about this, I was wondering what it might look like if Paul were here today and he had a Facebook account or a Twitter, Twitter account. You know, I think it might look something like this. First, I believe he would use it judiciously. He would put a lot of thought and prayer into what he posted. He would avoid the negative and focus on words of encouragement and vision and purpose and hope for the world. And he most certainly would avoid political rhetoric and debates and confrontations and things that he, he knows would probably drive people away anything that might be offensive and keep people from being able to relate anything that would damage a pathway into their lives now i realize that you know as as a church it, it is our role it is our job to engage in the social issues of our time but i gotta tell you it, Facebook ain't the platform for this. I've never seen anybody's mind or anybody's heart become changed because somebody posted a clever meme or, or because somebody articulated something just the right way in the comments section. If anything, usually what ends up happening is it drives a deeper wedge into what is already dividing us. Paul says that we are Christ ambassadors. So we need to remember this before we post anything. Is this something 
that we think is, is, is worth posting because if we attach ourselves to any entity, in this case, it's the kingdom of God because we are ambassadors of Christ, whether we realize it or not, people are going to see us as spokespeople for that entity. And it doesn't matter if you're right or wrong. What matters is if, you, is if you're going to be able to maintain that relationship after whatever it is you post uh, creates the offense. Do you see where I'm going with this? We have to be careful. We have to be careful. I, I believe that Paul would use social media to help people feel connected with the preaching of the gospel and the mission of, mission of the church and, and various church-related news and activities and prayer requests. And this is the other thing about social media that we need to be aware of is there's, there's algorithms and things that run behind the scenes. I don't have the smarts to know how it works. I don't know what the rules are. But I do know that when something gets posted, the more it gets liked and the more it gets shared, the more traction it gets. So if you really want to share, if you really want people to come and see what's going on at Revolution, then don't let the Revolution posts die on the vine. Share them. Like them. Don't say, oh, that was cool, and keep scrolling. Okay, this is, this is the easiest way that we have today to invite people. All it, all it requires is a click. Don't let things die on the vine. I think Paul would use it to steer people to more substantial platforms like uh, blog postings or websites or things that could help them grow in their relationship with Christ. And we, we could spend a lot of time here, but I, I just don't have it. But I want to use this moment to make an announcement this morning that I'm really excited about. Rachel Salmon has volunteered to be our new social media director. I guess that's a title we'll give her. Can we do that? She's, she's filling a gap that has desperately been needing to be filled. So thank you for doing this. So, so you, you may see some more things happening out there. May, you may see some more activity. <laughs> Don't let it die on the vine, okay? Now as we wrap up, prepare to go into a time of worship and communion. I just want to challenge us this morning. And I want, I want to ask ourselves as a serving community this question. Are we just building silos or are we doing what we need to be doing to spread the gospel message? How can you find ways to reach out in your little corner of the, of the world to serve and to reach others for the sake of the gospel? Who needs you to lead them to Christ? Find out what their passions are, what makes them tick. Find out how to get into their lives first and then forge a relationship. And then, and only then, allow the Holy Spirit to do what the Holy Spirit does. Allow yourself to be the salt and the light. And, and, and when you do, they will see Christ in you. And eventually they're going to wonder what it is about you that's different. What makes you so different? They might even ask, what, why are you this way? What makes you this way? What's this all about? And then you can seize the opportunity to invite them to come and to see. Let's pray. God, we thank you for uh, just how your word continues to be relevant, how it, how it stretches us, how it challenges us. And God, we pray that, that we just don't leave this place unaltered, that we don't leave this place unchanged, that we don't just let these words roll off of us, but you will help us to apply this in our lives. Put these names in our heads, even before we leave this place of the folks that you know that we need to be reaching out to and finding ways to forge those relationships with. We lift this all up in your holy name.
Amen. I've appreciated this month of reflecting with you on that invitation to come and see that we find in the Gospel of John that Jesus first invites the first disciples who then go to their friends and their brother and other disciples quickly follow. Come and see the one who takes away the sins of the world. Come and see. I've enjoyed reflecting with you as we've thought about the power of that invitation to come and see the one who knew everything I ever did and yet still loved me and still called me and still invited me to go back into the town that had been so awful to me and invited them to come and see. To reflect on how Jesus invites the little ones, whether that's kids or the marginalized or the underdog of our society, anyone over overlooked and neglected, it's Jesus who opens his arms and welcomes them. And what I've appreciated about uh, Daryl's message and proclamation this morning is that it reminds me that the church exists for the world. The church is supposed to stand at the intersection of heaven and hell, announcing the reign of God, the kingdom of God in the face of of all of the fear and all of the evil and all of the pain announcing that reign of God come and see the one who loves you so I've appreciated Daryl this reminder how can we invite to come and see when we're not willing to go and tell I'm going to remember that I'm going to it's going to haunt me for a little bit longer I think There's a message to proclaim. There's a story to tell. There's love to be shared. Our world needs it. And it's as simple, as simple as saying and inviting, come and see, come and see. And so we have this opportunity every Sunday, and I say this when we come to this table, to encounter the real grace of God, the real grace of Jesus Christ that is present for you in this world. It's sort of these uh, elements, these ordinary elements of crackers and juice and cups that, that, that somehow in this mysterious, wonderful way become reminders of us, of how God moves into the ordinary and makes it extraordinary you know, elements of salvation for us. These reminders that in the very basic feasting and eating and drinking, we are feasting in the kingdom of heaven as well. It's these reminders of calling us out of those silos to see the Lamb of God right here with us, this grace of God. And Lord, we know this is not the table of Revolution Church. This is not a meal that's just for us here to to find comfort in and to, to feel righteous in and to enjoy ourselves, but this is a meal that's meant for the world. It's grace that's meant for the world. And so I invite you this morning again to to come and encounter and and sort of humility and and recognizing ways that we have often fallen short of extending this invitation, of inviting others, ways that we have rather, you know, stayed in our own comforts than to move beyond our comfort zones and to engage with the world around us. So hear this invitation that Christ invites you 
Christ invites you sinners. Christ invites all who love him to earnestly repent of their sins. Christ invites you to reflect and to repent and to come and see. To come and see, to taste and see that the Lord is good, that the Lord loves you. Thank you, sir. It's great to be in worship with you all this morning. A great opportunity next week to invite someone you know to come and see some good coffee, right? A birthday party where it's our last year before we're a teenager. It's a big deal. Preteen. 12 is an important year in the life. We're tween tweeners? I don't think so. No. But it's a great opportunity. Maybe don't say any of that that I just did. When you go and invite someone to church next week for snow cones after a birthday party, I may even bust out the birthday party hats. It's going to be a great time. And we're going to kick it off. It's Pentecost. We're going to kick it off with talking uh, a month about the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives and in our world today. Holy Ghost stories. That's what we're going to talk about. So gather around the campfire with us this month of June for some Holy Ghost stories. All right, hope you guys have a great week. God bless you. Let's go in peace and be the revolution. Amen. <laughs>